Hello, and welcome to the Leaders' Council podcast, the podcast for the people who run the country and the people who keep the country running. You join us on yet another sunny day in the capital. I'm Matthew O'Neill, and as always, we ensure that we have a variety of distinct perspectives on leadership. First, we're joined by Lisa Davies of Attentus. Lisa, hello. Hello, Matthew. Thank you for coming on the show today. Uh, we might as well dive straight in. What is your personal leadership style? Mine is very much um, quite upfront about things. I like to get down to business quite quickly. Um, I like to be clear about what um, what I'm after, what I've got on offer, um, just so that it's you know there's no wasting any time. Um, and then you know if you actually have other mutual um, relationships or interests together, then with other individuals, then you can go on from there, you know, in a different direction, but very much focused on uh, business and, and what's at hand. And uh, of course, recently you participated in the Westminster Legal Policy Forum on the deprivation of liberty. Can you tell us a bit more about that? Yeah, so I think, um, you know, there's the, the landscape's changing um, a lot. And within the mental health space, you, you know, this is an area that, that has kind of plagued um, the nation and, and other countries as well for for centuries, and obviously as medicine kind of advances and we understand more and more about the body and the brain and things like that, so there's quite a lot of changes. But there also needs to be a lot more push on the um, the, the aspect of who is appraising um, what laws come into place, what constraints are being placed, and whether those constraints are actually doing more harm. Um, than good, and 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 so I think it's it's important to constantly reevaluate, re and and sometimes I think you have to make quite a big uh, shift in, in some of these areas now in mental health to put it on par with um, how the physical health um, areas are, are managed. Um, obviously, uh, mental health is uh, quite in the news recently. What are the most pressing issues facing the mental health sector uh, today? I think you've got kind of challenges that are coming from all places for sort of every individual, for every citizen. Um, and, you know, even uh, doctors and nurses, as much as they're educated in these areas, or even psychologists and psychiatrists, they're not immune uh, to some of these challenges in mental health themselves. Um, so I think it's important to understand the level of stress that's kind of being implied on individuals. So whether that's just from work, but it can also be to do with kind of family dynamics, it can be to do with not feeling you have enough choice with regards to education, not feeling that you're being supported, perhaps you're caring for people. Um, and so we're very much sort of at capacity. I think everybody, you know, quite a lot of individuals are at capacity. And I think that's why we're seeing some of the challenges, uh, certainly in the teenage years as well, because there's a big push on there, but there isn't necessarily the support network within their family or, or friends to be able to get them through any of the challenging times. Um, so it's kind of a, a sense of coming to a, not necessarily a crisis point. I think that that would be um, exaggerating it. But I think it's come to a point where we really need to look at capacity. We need to look at how people can handle things. And I think both sort of work environments and, and businesses need to look at how somebody does their job, but also what are we expecting of somebody in terms of education and the, the caring requirements that might be placed on them, whether they're a parent looking after children or they're actually an individual looking after their parents. 
Now, are we looking at uh, a need for a change in wholesale mindset when it comes towards stress? I know that when I was at school, I was uh, very distinctly informed that stress was good. It made uh, you keep on your edge. Do we need to change that mentality in people? I I mean, that's a great question. And and, and there is benefit for um, stress. But what what that's good for is, is generally in the moment. When we have it in a kind of chronic way, essentially we, we can't sustain that at any particular kind of level um, and we have to shut down a lot of things and go into quite a primitive approach to things um, so for example if you get somebody that's um, suffering from a kind of domestic abuse and things like that they will go into kind of a, a primitive survival mode um, and, and therefore won't have necessarily like you might notice it in the workplace they won't have normal responses to things they won't necessarily be uh, rational about um, some of the things that are kind of happening in, in that particular environment and that's because they're already at, at so much particular uh, pressure and I think that's, that's the point between sort of acute stress and, and chronic stress and, and acute can can be okay obviously also it can kind of put you over and that can kind of lead you to the, the heart attack as well but I, I do think uh, uh, there does need to be kind of a big change in the mindset um, but I think a lot of it is actually masses of resources to go in to support people when people are resourced they can handle more more stress. Um, and when people don't think they're resourced, then then that's an issue. And I know one of the big elements is um, this idea that time is money. Mm-hmm. And so people are trading their time for money because we, we've got all these challenges with housing and the goods that we need and putting a roof over our heads and things like that. Whereas if we change some of our mindset around what is time and what can we do with our time, does, do we have to just accumulate money or could we accumulate something else that would give us those resources? Is this a very much a mindset that you're taking into your own workplace in the way in which that you um, bring up new members of staff and uh, uh, mentor uh, those on an earlier stage in their career? I mean, very much, I, I, you know, the, the area that I work on is, is looking at large workforces and, and how do we resource large workforces and how do we do that with the minimal amount of effort. Um, so I think technology plays a big part in being able to be a deliverer um, of those um, applications, um, but we still need to put the knowledge in there. And I think um, very often uh, people are very busy doing their job and or very busy looking after the family and things like that and they don't feel they have the time in order to to put those resources in and I think that's where is encouraging people to step back a a bit and and, and say actually you need to absorb more of this kind of uh, information it's actually going to support you for the longer term I think some of these large tech companies do appreciate that they do look at this kind of downtime because they know that in that point of reflection or that opportunity to you know silly as it sounds to play you know pool or something like that actually that your unconscious mind is still working but it's actually figuring out some of the solutions to the problems that are going on so we never actually switch off from work but having that downtime allows us to, to actually figure some of the things out by having that space. Now, I speak to uh, quite a lot of CEOs and MDs of uh, quite large organizations. What would your advice to them be in handling their staff? So I think you've got to understand communication. And and I know a lot of people kind of push communication, but it's understanding actually how people may react to certain things. So 
we can think we, we're telling a great story around security by by highlighting uh, an issue that might be present um, or might have happened in the past and kind of saying, you know, look, this is the reason why we need to do it and to to kind of communicate sort of the urgency of it or the reason to create the change. However, you do not know what your workforce is going through. And I certainly know through my career that I've met people that are dealing with, you know, a friend that's feeling suicidal or, you know, their brother's quite unwell in hospital and things like that. So when they're under that kind of stress and then they think, oh, and there's a security alert as well, um, that then puts them into kind of a hypervigilant state and which means they're going to make core decision uh, making for the long term because they're going to be thinking about, you know, immediate threats. So you think we've really got to look at communication in a whole new light and think about what are we saying to somebody and how could we be triggering them and how could we say this in a different way to get the same result that we want um, and it might be better that we use other different methods, either from different avenues or different applications so we don't put people in a, in a higher stress state. Frankly, this is such an important issue that we could do an entire hour on this. Unfortunately, we're running very uh, low on time and we have to have you back on the show again in the near future. But before I let you go, uh, what does next 12 months have in store for Attentus? Well, we're actually doing very much about investment uh, in the longer term and building up the online innovation library um, so that we're able to deploy that out into large corporates. That could be something that takes even more than, than 12 months. Um, may look at some pilots for organisations to get on board and to be able to test how they can uh, utilise the library. And, and so very much going to be a, a, an R&D time. Well, I'd like to thank you very much for coming on the show. Lisa, it's been an absolute pleasure discussing leadership with you. And of course, uh, you're going to have to come back on the show very soon. Thank you. Uh, there has been a lot Brilliant. of criticism, especially from, That was Lisa Davies uh, for, uh, of Attentus. Uh, and now, if you haven't heard before, is Jonathan White's exclusive interview with Lord Blunkett. Uh, uh, government is being part of 40 years of Thatcherism. Yes, I think it's really unfortunate, uh, particularly when new MPs come in having seen large swathes of their colleagues lose their seat, uh, to roll up the 13 years of Labour government with everything that I'm so proud of. I mean, I, we, we were not neoliberals or anything like it. We were able, in the first 10 years certainly, uh, which I played a part in, to be able to turn the economy around, to invest in health and education, to be able to transform people's aspirations and their hopes for the the future, and that included ensuring people got the minimum wage, which we never had before, sure start to nurture youngsters from the most moment they were born, transformation in the quality of education. And all these things actually add up to helping people to improve and change their lives for the better. And anyone who thinks that's not good and that isn't a government to be proud of needs to answer the question, what chivalet is it? that you would want that would actually have done more to change those lives. I can think of two or three myself in terms mm. of uh, dramatically taking on uh, inequality, although half a million children were taken out of poverty in those years. I can think of being even tougher on crime, even though I was dubbed as one of the tougher home secretaries because the people that I cared about most were, on the whole not exclusively, but mainly the victims of crime. 
I can think about taking on the very, very rapidly growing transnational power of the big tech companies, which we still need to work through in terms of how we do that from a, a single nation just off the coast of Europe and how we work internationally without getting caught up in wars we don't want to be involved in. But how, how are we international in a way that ensures that we play our part in making a better life for humanity as a whole rather than disengaging and becoming alien from the rest of the world? Those are big questions for the social democratic left, particularly with artificial intelligence and robotics changing the world of work forever, I think, in the next 20 years. Uh, an ageing population. Labour got 18% of the over 65 vote in the general election. Just 18%. It's staggeringly... It's extraordinary. Staggeringly bad. Um, and and climate think... change, which we all know, is going to be either a big gain or a terrific political trauma. We've got to take people with us. No matter uh, which political party it is, the changes that will occur in this decade especially will determine their future ideologies, certainly. And sp- speaking of your time... Uh, as Home Section in government. Um, you worked with so many different individuals of all political stripes and none at all. Is there someone, and on the theme of leadership, that stands out to you that embodies some of those qualities you described earlier? Yes, I mean, I, it's on the theme of bottom-up, it was some of the most inspiring uh, head teachers and classroom teachers who, in really, really difficult circumstances, were actually transforming the life chances of children. By inspiring those children to want to learn, to, if you like, lighting a candle inside them, uh, giving them a, a, a window on the world, which created an inquiring mind and an understanding that the world was their oyster, that they could do things with support. My, my philosophy has always been mutuality and reciprocity. We, we need mutuality to support each other. We need reciprocity in terms of understanding that we don't just take, we, we give a lot as well. And I suppose that really comes down to uh, if you're prepared to do something for yourself, we're prepared to do something to help you. And that's fundamentally in education, but it is in all sorts of walks of life as well. So you can have innovation, you can have entrepreneurship and creativity in, in business, you can have the way in which people turn things around for themselves. Small businesses have done that, the contribution to... Uh, new ways of doing things, of thinking differently about our economy. Th- those are all grit to the mill. Those are the things we need to do. And we can do them together. It's not that you're on the side of the devil if you're an entrepreneur or you're on the side of the angels if you work in public services. We, we are mm. dependent on each other. Uh, you can't have one without the other. Yes. Um, and I think to coin a term, uh, uh, extraordinary, ordinary people, and especially when it comes to giving your answer, David, to uh, teachers, to carers, people that honestly don't get the recognition they deserve on a day-to-day basis. And without them, half of society wouldn't function. Completely. I I call it civil society, which functions even when government isn't functioning. It's It's the glue that holds things together. It's people working and living and having their being together and recognizing that they are dependent on each other. I've obviously met incredibly inspiring leaders in a different vein, I was very fortunate to have met Nelson Mandela three times. Uh, I met Bill Clinton a number of times, both of whom, in very, very different ways, were inspiring leaders. 
I've met people in leadership positions who couldn't take a decision to save their lives. Uh, Tony Blair famously said in the, his conference speech the year before he stood down as prime minister, and I, I knew exactly what he meant. He said the worst ministers are those who won't take decisions, and anyone in a leadership role needs to, A, know why they're there, what they intend to do with the uh, authority mm. that goes with being a leader and a manager, and then how to draw people in as a team to be able to implement it so that it's a team approach. It's not someone out on a white charger. It's someone who can mobilise, motivate, provide incentives for people to feel that they're part of the solution as well. Uh, and I think whether it's politics, whether it's business, whether it's sport, it's exactly those qualities that you need to succeed in any of them. Yes, it is. And if people recognise that and they have a clear idea themselves, they, they have and build, because you can't build, leadership qualities. They know how to manage their own time and their own emotions because we all, from time to time, feel like really losing our temper. And I don't pretend for a minute over the years <laughs> that, that I haven't. How, how to control your own feelings and emotion, and how to bring the best out in other people's. How, how you work out that people who are really good don't threaten you, they compliment you. People who have complementary skills to you are really valuable. And I suppose the ability to listen, not just for its own sake, mm. but to listen because you are conglomerating, I suppose you would call it plagiarizing, thoughts, ideas, ways forward, from everyone around you. I often think that um, football managers wouldn't do too bad a job if they actually talked to the fans after the game. Well, everyone <laughs> knows, uh, David, you know, you're a big Sheffield Wednesday fan. It I know. can't be easy having to hear the it, praise of Chris Wilder and Sheffield United every week after No, week. I, it isn't, although it's damn good for Sheffield, so I'm being a bit magnanimous at the moment. That's very good about of you. Sheffield United in the Premier League because it... it it's change. It does change. It lifts the image of the city internationally. If you're not just because it's Sheffield United, but because if you're playing Liverpool uh, and you're playing Man City, then that's a global audience. You're immediately beamed across the world. So that's good. I I, I could cry sometimes. We can we can beat uh, Brighton Premier League side in the FA Cup at Brighton. We can. Beat Leeds at Leeds. I was there when we beat them 2-0 in January. And then you can lose 5-0. And then five you lose 5-0 at home to Blackburn and half the fans were out of the ground by, by half-time. What, what would a manager blanket say in this situation? I, I would have asked myself a very simple question. What went wrong with motivating those players so that when they came out on the field... They walked instead of ran. They didn't have any of the passion they'd had the week before at Leeds. They showed no drive and incentive to take hold of the game. What, what went wrong with the same players who'd played very well the week previously? And if you could answer that question, and there may have, something may have happened. Who knows? Something during the morning, before the game started, something may have gone sour you get the answer to that question and you then start to ensure that we never, never do this again. Yeah, well, I'm a Chelsea fan, so I'm beginning to feel your pain at the minute. Um, <laughs> but I would like to pick up on another point you just made, actually, David, about choosing a strong team, people that compliment you. A lot of criticism that uh, Theresa May got as Prime Minister was that she tended not to pick, perhaps, the more ambitious, the more uh, uh, 
people, uh, uh, ministers that might well challenge her. One of Boris Johnson's, for all his faults, uh, he has been said in the past, he's a man that picks people that are good at their briefs. Do you agree with that? Well, I'll reserve judgment on that until I see the outcome of the reshuffle, which, as we record this podcast, has not yet happened. Mm. And I imagine, I, I would be very surprised if he didn't have quite a brutal reshuffle, not just to get people in who he likes, but people who are going to be really sparky and able and clear at doing the job because you can have all the best ideas in the world. You can pronounce on what you're going to do, but if you haven't got leaders in those departments prepared to do it, if they're just toadies, by the way, and there is a tendency, a new mm. prime minister, large majority, got to be very careful that you don't pick people because you're receiving the echo of your own voice uh, when you're speaking to them. But get able people in. I, I, I won't comment on some of the less able, but there are <laughs> clearly in the cabinet as I speak at the moment people who are really just not up to it. I mean, incidentally, anyone who won't be cross-examined by decent journalists on the BBC, changed their minds recently about mm. Sky, <clears throat> isn't worth their salt. If, but part of being cross-questioned is to demonstrate to yourself that you've got a grasp of your brief that you believe in it, and that you can persuade people of it. And if you can't do that under real cross-examination rather than sitting on the sofa for, a, for a, a, an easy morning television programme, get out of the business. You know, don't, don't do Without it. Without a doubt. Yeah. Uh, that's, and also, I should add, that is how uh, these all stripes earn that respect in the first place. But there is a question, isn't I'm there? I'm trying to answer the questions. That's, that's <laughs> what I always tried to answer the or questions. Or be very good at avoiding them. Either way. Um, oh, well, the, the way of avoiding them is to take it head on and say, I'm, I'm not going to answer that question. Explain why. Quite. Uh, <laughs> the, um, and I think one of the great things about uh, the Lise Casson especially is that um, it takes and talks to people again, from all different backgrounds, leading something very different, whether it's a charity, whether it's a business, whether it's in politics. There comes points, though, and David, you must have experienced this, whether it's leading Sheffield City Council or as Home Secretary. When people are looking at you for leadership, where do you get your strength from? I think there's something inside all of us. There's a tenacity, there's a, an ambition, there's a desire to get things done, to make a difference inside you, whether you're in public service, the charities or you're driving a business that actually says this is why I get up in the morning so you've got to have something internal to yourself the, the second is the satisfaction you get back because you do from seeing things change for the better you, you can take pride without being egotistical there's nothing wrong with being proud of what you do and to want to do it even better and that's why you need both sharp minds around you. In my case, it was special advisors as, as well as ministers. I pretty well picked my ministers. Sometimes Tony asked me to take people who I was a little bit iffy about, and we had to meld people into the team. I was able to pick all my own special advisors, and that really did make a difference. Mm. But in, in the end, you've got to like what you're doing. I mean, the, the, the people who are un, unhappy in their skin, they... they it's very difficult to perform if you're in the wrong business or in the wrong department of a business or if you're really hating teaching or in politics. You, 
you're just in the wrong department. I was very lucky because education and employment were my first loves in terms of what I wanted to do, and I got the job for four years. I'd then come to the conclusion that there were really big challenges for us. It turned out even bigger than I expected with the attack on the World Trade Center Mm. three months after I became Home Secretary. But the big challenges of security, of reducing crime, of dealing with the development of positive citizenship, which also had a readover in terms of immigration, the kind of things that change people's lives either for the better or the worse. And you don't get everything right. That's the other thing you've got to recognise, which is why being part of a broader team, being able to take criticism but not always accept it <laughs> because otherwise you blow with the wind, that, that, that's the, the measure. And I think if we can share those traits, those experiences, those different elements through the Leadership Council, if we can get people from very, very different leadership managerial roles and delivery roles to actually be able to share that experience, everyone will gain something from it because that dialogue will inform, it will avoid people reinventing the wheel, it will take people a lot further than the the niche, for good or ill, the niche that they're in at the moment. Um, David, in the very uh, in a couple of minutes we have left, um, I will be mean and put you on the spot and ask you for predictions, perhaps in three things. What will happen in the Labour leadership contest? How will the next few months go for the government after Brexit? Uh, well, after we leave the European Union on the thirty first of January, and where will Sheffield Wednesday finish in the league? Lord above, <laughs> I'm not. I'm not sure which is the most difficult of those <laughs> questions. I, I've already in indicated where my support is for the, the Labour leadership. If we take it at the end of January 2020, Keir Starmer has clearly got, a, got off to a very, very um, strong start. I think, however, it will be very much down to who can reach those parts of the Labour Party membership that came in on the back of Jeremy Corbyn's election in 2015 to that post, who can be persuaded that what they want to see and the change, the big changes they'd like to enact can only be brought about in any form if we win and we win back the people, the tragic loss of people on our side uh, mm. in December 2019. Uh, and that, that's got to be Lisa Nandy or, or Keir. On, on the, um, the, the next few months, I think that the government will probably do quite well. I, I, I think that there are real dangers ahead in just having 11 months to negotiate trade deals, especially with bellicose pronouncements about we're not going to have alignment, as though alignment in itself is a bad thing when some of it will be very good. So I think there are dangers, but I think there's quite a bit of momentum going with the government at the moment, and that will be reflected in relationships, in doing deals in Europe and facing outwards to the rest of the world. Sheffield Wednesday, God help me. I mean, you know, how is it that two of the things that are most important to me, other than my family and loved ones, is football and and politics? I think Sheffield Wednesday will be hard-pressed now to get into the playoffs. If we do, 
I think we could pull it off, but I am really reluctant. And I think on that prediction, your reputation will be judged. Lord Blunkett, thank you very much for joining us today. God bless you, Jonathan. (laughs) This has been the Leaders' Council podcast. Thank you for celebrating excellence and leadership with us. I have been your host, Matthew O'Neill. Until next time, goodbye. Thank you for listening to our podcast. The views expressed within the podcast do not reflect the views of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, its parent company or subsidiaries, members of staff, other guests, or any other person therein associated.